Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. Retrofit first, not retrofit only. Brought to you in association with Wilkinson Air. All right, so we'll make a start then. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Nuno Correa and I'm Head of Sustainability at Wilkinson Air. It's a pleasure to welcome you to this session where we'll explore the topic of retrofit first, not retrofit only. Where do we start with this? We know, we know that approximately 80% of the building stock in 2050 will be comprised of uh, buildings already standing today. Therefore, scaling up retrofit is absolutely key to decarbonize our built environment as we move to net zero. But it is a very challenging task. So last year, the London Property Association has published a report called Retrofit First, Not Retrofit Only, which aims to navigate the complexities around this issue. It also illustrates a spectrum of recent net zero carbon commercial projects undertaken across Westminster and the City of London. To talk about this, uh, I'm honored to be joined by a fantastic panel of experts, which I'll introduce now. Uh, so to my left, uh, I've got Marie-Louise Kembry, Sustainability Director for Hilson Run. Marie-Louise is a, an industry thought leader on zero carbon in ESG, contributing to a number of key industry publications and task groups. She authored the draft planning advisory note for whole life cycle carbon optioneering for the City of London and manages landlords occupy collaboration for reducing the environmental impacts of commercial assets. Gareth Roberts, head of development at Broadgate for British Lands. Gareth's responsible for the planning, design, construction and financial performance of the 14 development projects that comprise the Broadgate vision. In addition, he leads on development acquisitions for innovation in life sciences. Kirsty Draper, Head of Sustainability, UK Agency for JLL. Kirsty supports clients on their sustainability journeys to ensure that ESG objectives are realized in their real estate portfolios. Kirsty is also a Vice Chair of the WPA Planning and Sustainability Group. And definitely not a coincidence, uh, Kirsty's co-authored a report called Retrofit First, Not Retrofit Only, which is probably a good place to start. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Kirsty to um, take the stage and share the context and the findings of, of the report with us. Thanks, Nino. <clears throat> Hi, everyone. Um, I hope you can hear me at the back. I'm not sure how great the, uh, the sound is. Great. Um, so, Kirsty Draper, I head up sustainability for our UK agency business at JLL, as well as vice chair of the Westminster Property Association Planning and Sustainability Group. Um, I've worked in the property industry for about 20 years, um, the majority of which was spent in central London capital markets focusing on development consulting. I spent a few years in Hong Kong and when I got back in 2015, that's when I took on a side of my desk job at the time of ESG lead for central London markets. Um, because of my commercial background, I found I was quite good at translating ESG into actual commercial drivers and really what that meant for the market. Um, the business then realized the value in what I was doing and so it became a full-time role. Um, I then officially got involved with the planning and sustainability group uh, of the London Property Alliance back in 2019 and was heavily involved in the first white paper. Go, um, 
which explored how Westminster and developers could work together to decarbonise the built environment. This was followed with a paper which explored some of the really specific challenges around decarbonising heritage stock and some of the opportunities and interventions that could be made. This retrofit paper then followed. Um, because a number of the interventions that can be made for heritage are actually sim similar to a number of the interventions that can be made to buildings more generally, we really wanted to focus um, this paper specifically around 20th century stock. Um, we, want, we also wanted to widen the paper to include other London boroughs because this is a London-wide, if not um, global, issue. Um, and we wanted to explore why some developers, in some cases, are still pursuing new build. Um, and to really understand some of the challenges involved um, when deciding what's best for a potential retrofit or redevelopment project. How developers were approaching that decision-making process and help to provide guidance for how to navigate what is actually a really complex decision-making process and balancing act. Now, the research was undertaken through a mix of qualitative interviews with developers um, and measurable analysis of the case studies. Um, oh, too far. Um, now, Getting case studies was actually not the easiest thing in the world. Um, because the concept of net zero carbon has only really been mainstream for a few years now, um, which isn't very long in the context of development, and there's still no industry-wide definition, um, it was tricky finding case studies which had sufficient detail of the before and after product. However, we did manage to get a really good mix of locations, architectural typologies, and a range of retrofit and redevelopment case studies, as you can see. Um, these do sit on a spectrum from um, an internal refurbishment at Derwent's T building in Hackney, comprehensive retrofits such as Brovner's Holbein Gardens, significant retrofits such as British Lands, 100 Liverpool Street, part refurbishment, part new builds such as Landsex, Timber, Timber Square, through to new builds such as Bentall Green Oaks, 105 Victoria Street. Um, I'm going to just touch on, I'm not going to be talking for long, um, but some of our kind of key findings. So firstly, we found net zero carbon was being delivered through both retrofit and new build. Um, and I think what was really exciting was seeing some of the innovation um, in both retrofit and new build in order to reduce carbon, reusing steel, using carbon sequestering materials, and a move towards material passporting and design for disassembly. The other thing which came across really, really strongly for me was that everyone we interviewed had a retrofit first approach and were really strong on their views on that. It was definitely the first consideration that every developer we interviewed had for their scheme. Um, we then found 
retrofit, unsurprisingly, was most viable for buildings which had a certain set of characteristics and redevelopment was most often pursued when these characteristics weren't present. Um, then other drivers do need to be taken into consideration. I think 105 Victoria Street is a really great case study where the social elements and the social benefit of the redevelopment um, were really um, prioritized and really given quite heavy weighting when it came to that decision-making process. Um, but then we also saw a number of the common challenges for both retrofit and new build. As we all know, green skills shortages, build costs, lack of available data. Um, and then the bit that everyone seems to kind of, I think is slowly getting their heads around now, but it's the occupier engagement piece because we can design and deliver the best buildings in the world, but if they're not run and operated in the right way, it becomes pointless. Um, and then finally, um, I would say there's no one size fits all. So how do we create a policy which supports and encourages retrofit first, but still has enough flexibility to recognize those situations where retrofit might not be viable so that we're not just left with loads of really poorly performing stock. I think we'll now go to the panel discussion. Thank you, Kirsty. Uh, that was great. Um, just a reminder to everyone uh, that you can submit questions through the uh, Slido app and, uh, and you, can also, you can also just uh, raise your hand if you want to ask a question to, to the panel. There'll be, there'll be a, a, a roaming mic but I'll perhaps just uh, start with, with a question for you, Kirsty. Thanks again for, for the presentation. I was wondering, obviously, when, when trying to deliver uh, commercial, commercial buildings, there's a number of competing factors. Uh, it's about carbon, but also about health and well-being, uh, social value, heritage. That's lots and lots of things to, to think about. Um, so how, how do we balance all of these things? Or, or, or do we just focus on, on carbon for now? What, what do you think? Ah, oh, the big question. Um, it's really interesting because one of the things that I look at from a market perspective is particularly what occupiers are looking for, what investors are looking for. And I think what's been really positive in the years that I've been involved in this field, I mean, back in 2015, when I was in capital markets, no one wanted to talk to me about ESG. And the step change that we've seen, partly through regulations such as SFDR, EU taxonomy, that has driven the market in a really positive way. But investors do tend to just be focused on the carbon piece. Whereas on the flip side, occupiers, for occupiers, carbon is important, but actually so are so many other factors, particularly around health and well-being and um, employee experience. And sometimes when you're looking at a scheme, actually, they may not necessarily sit that comfortably alongside each other. So it, it is quite a balancing act because as important as carbon is, we also need places to heap um, our people and our communities well and healthy. And so that is a really important factor that needs to be taken into account. Definitely, yeah. I was, I was wondering, uh, as, as a designer, Marie-Louise, how, how do you see this? Um, because the design of office buildings is, is obviously 
uh, changing and we're now in a situation where we're starting to look at more of a, a spectrum of different types of office buildings uh, that can accommodate kind of our challenges around new build versus versus retrofits. Uh, how, how do we look beyond carbon to, to deliver holistic schemes? I mean, you mentioned 2015. That's probably around the time when health and well-being started to come up the list of priorities. And we started to re recognize with evidence how important it is and why it, it should be important to the occupier. Um, the whole conversation about ensuring that we don't create stranded assets by forcing retrofit where it's not appropriate is also a carbon story. So getting it right for the market, getting it right so that there's longevity in the building and even considering circularity. Um, yes, carbon now is more important than carbon in 10, 20 years time because it is an emergency and it's still top of the list. Probably sitting more on the developer side as a, an understood responsibility and design side. But that's the balance we need to seek because it becomes, you don't want any empty buildings sitting there and we need to make the best of densification in cities and sometimes that, that challenge grows because of poorer daylight, etc. But there are carbon reasons to densify as well. So again, it's part of the decision process. So when we sit down, we look at whether changing the facade is more important because of daylight issues, for example, and there's probably a long list. But we do have to be careful not to use certain perhaps standards of design that we're used to and we're used to parroting in the industry because that's business as usual and that's what we know as an excuse to avoid retrofit. But we're getting quite good at it. London is good at it in particular and, and we've caught up quite a bit in, in a very short time. But this is quite new to everybody. Um, and I suppose if we had given embodied carbon as much important as we've given energy for the last 50 years, we would be better at retrofitting now than we are. And I guess there's a lot of catch up to do and it's fair that we have to go through this as a learning process as an industry. Thank you. We, we actually have a, a follow-up follow -up question on, on that issue from, from the audience. Uh, so the question goes, given that we're facing climate emergency now, it may be already too late to limit warming to 1.5. Should we be focusing on embodied carbon rather than whole life carbon? Um, I think so. I think it's definitely more important. Um, if you've seen the data on building level embodied carbon relative to, to whole life, it can be 35%, 70% at the upfront stage of the whole life cycle. And that's considering a 60-year, which is the, the standard of considering. So absolutely embodied carbon is incredibly important, but it's sometimes not the priority. It's a case-by-case, case, but definitely top of the list if, you're, if you have a hierarchy of what you need to be considering. Emel, can I just add to that? Because when we think of... So we're talking about London commercial stock, which is circa 250 million square feet, and the, you know, the question about embodied. So the bulk of the, the, the research paper um, is applying to stock that is going to be refreshed at some point over the next 20 years. The bulk of the problem is in the standing stock that sits there where someone has to get vacancy to be able to retrofit to improve operational carbon. So I think all the big gains globally will be around that standing stock. And I think it's quite interesting how we need some sort of regulatory change to help incentivize that behavior. To Kirsty's point around customer preference, we love talking about embodied carbon because it's about how bits of steel fit together and all that sort of stuff, and that's really fun. And occupiers aren't that interested. They're really focused on the operational carbon. 
because that's what matters to them with their reporting and their strategies and all that sort of stuff. So we need to find a way that helps occupiers become more interested in that embodied debate as well. And we can talk about this maybe later, but do we want to think about things outside of our interest, outside of our industry that are maybe kind of bigger questions like how do we get the tax system to support retrofit first, not retrofit only, or that change in emphasis on the occupier side from uh, just operational to include embodied? Hmm. I'd like to pick, pick on a point uh, of, of the occupier side of things and I, 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 was, I was thinking as well, how do we, how do we kind of challenge uh, agents, owners and, and occupiers to be, able, to be able to accept a slightly different product so, so we, we, we kind of go away from this one-size-fits-all sort of BCO guide approach? Well, I think that you know, policy moves quite slowly, so who's brave enough to experiment, test and prove the concept that others can then point to to then use it as a reference point, because it can be hard to be, to be brave on this stuff. There's some, there's some things that are changing on like, the standard side, so you know, the, there's all the stuff in the BCO around, you know, can we reduce floor loadings, can we reduce you know, small power allowances and all that sort of stuff, which is, which is good, but it, it's hard to be brave. Um, there's quite a lot of um, reliance on, okay, where's my, where's my list of spec and what can I tick and how do you get through to the next stage? And certainly at, at British Land, we're trying hard to have a more nuanced conversation about that. Um, certainly when we think about our customers, so we think about our customers in two ways. The, the first set of customers are investors and our shareholders who want strong, stable financial returns over a period of time from um, a portfolio that has longevity. On the other side, our customers are the occupiers who want to have this real estate that delivers productive, healthy um, staff that help them drive performance for their business. Um, and it, it, when, we, when we talk to both of those audiences about um, the performance of our business, uh, it used to be, to kind of back up Kirsty's point, that you, know, you, you might, in meeting or on you know, page number 25 of the deck, you get to talk about sustainability, whereas now it's one of the key messages on the first page. So it's great that it's elevated in people's consciousness. And I think that as we, as we look at some of the people who've been involved in the research and the product they've done, um, they are proving the concept that retrofit can deliver best-in-class rents, it can deliver best-in-class yields, it can, it can secure kind of cheap and flexible financing, um, and, it, and it then has shareholder value. So as people are starting to prove those things, we will build momentum through the industry. So I'm quite hopeful for that. And I want to be a little bit forgiving of ourselves collectively. Kirsty's point again around the passage of time. Some of the stuff that we're talking about now is stuff that was, you know, we started designing it five or six years ago when we were thinking a little bit differently. So I think we're going to see a real step change in the next five to six years, challenging standards and being bold. But also, I think there's an element of upskilling involved because actually so much of the sustainability elements that go into a building, as you say, they are hidden. And if they're not really clearly articulated to the agents and the occupiers when they're going around, they're just not going to be valued. And so actually, agents do have a big responsibility in being able to articulate everything that's gone into that building, all the effort that has gone into reducing the carbon, why they've done that. And then on the operational side as well, actually what that means for them as an occupier, what they may have to do slightly differently within that building in order for it to really perform and deliver as it was intended to. Definitely. So, so it's, about, it's about communication as well. And it's about being able to challenge the standards and, and kind of bring people along the way on, on, on that journey. I guess. But actually, 
Yes, and I think as Gareth said, we have seen some amazing retrofit um, projects, which as you say, perform both operationally and financially as a new build. And so it's very possible. However, there are also some buildings where the compromise is just going to be too much for some occupiers, um, slash most occupiers. There is a very real flight to quality at the moment. And as Gareth said, you know, the reporting that companies have to make is really fo focused on that operational piece. Um, and we are seeing occupiers downsizing, but taking better quality space. And so delivering compromised product for a market that's wanting the best quality space is a challenge. It's, it might be lower carbon, but it's wasted carbon. I think to, this is to ML's point, and again, going back to the London office market, it's like 250 million square feet. If we try and be clear-eyed, it's, it's hard as someone who has got like, you know, an office's background to be clear-eyed about this thing. Um, is it a structural or a cyclical challenge that the um, offices are kind of facing at the moment? Um, I think it's structural, personally, uh, and there's a risk that 10 to 20% of that 250 million square feet becomes obsolete. So what, what happens to that space? There's something quite interesting there around retrofit that goes outside of the use class that we're talking about in this session as to how new build for, okay, housing, all that sort of stuff will be the best use for it. But we don't want to be forcing retrofit to create a product that then is obsolete and falls into that bottom 10 to 20% of the market because it's wasted carbon, even if it's low carbon. And we have the risk of having a huge, a huge amount of our, of our markets uh, with, with assets becoming stranded and, and sort of creating two markets almost where, where the net zero carbon assets are continuing to, to increase in value and, 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 there's, and there's just a huge amount of empty office space. Well, a few, a few sort of data points on that. So we're seeing like this big bifurcation of rents between a, stuff, a stock that is green and stock that is brown for want of um, a, you know, a, a more nuanced label at the moment. Um, and I think there's, uh, there's a couple of examples of that. The first thing, sorry to reference Deloitte when JLL did the research, but in the Deloitte Crane survey recently, they were talking about the, it's the highest number of refurbishments that are on site in London since they started that survey in 2005, um, at just over 3 million square feet. So you can start to see that changing in the market. Um, another data point is um, when I think about most of the work that I do is in the city. So currently in the city, uh, there's about 130 um, units of space available between 10 and 15,000 square feet. When we think about those structural challenges and how retrofit has to have longevity, those 130 units of 10 to 15,000 square feet, that's a lot. You can't get your voice heard. One of the ways to get your voice heard is to have the right product in terms of ESG, in terms of amenity. What's really from a retrofit perspective, so one of our projects that we've got on site at the moment, 199 Bishopsgate um, with BGY and Overbury, um, we wanted to create terrace space. Occupiers love amenity. Great, let's do that. Oh, hang on, we want to get to net zero, so we want to put in some SOC pumps like everyone. Oh, well, that's going to go where the terrace is going to go. So what do we choose? And well, fortunately, we were able to choose both because the design team is really good. Um, but that's not always the case. So how do you trade off that you know, transition to net zero versus the amenity that will get the space let? And we've got to, we're forecasting there what the occupiers will want, and we're hoping that the judgment we make today will last you know, the 10 to 15-year refurbishment cycle for that building. Yeah, it's going to be an expensive mistake if we get it wrong. So let's see. Yeah. It's, if 
just to add to that, I mean, I, I have similar stats. I read that there's the equivalent of 45 walkie-talkies vacant in London. That was a, an article in 2022. Almost there's this slightly dangerous situation where occupiers are seeking the better space and are coming with their own ESG and are asking the questions, bearing in mind that they come to the market um, as the, the occupier market comes every... 25, 20, 15 years, leases are getting shorter. So there's a huge educational curve. But they are leaving behind quite a lot of vacancies because of this enlightenment, ESG enlightenment. So we need to be retrofitting faster because we can't be replacing those buildings and keeping within our carbon budgets. Yeah, but as, as, we, as we retrofit, it, there's almost an unfairness of, of retrofits having to look the same the same as new build. So how, how, do we, how do we navigate that issue, particularly kind of on the designer side? What, what, are, the, um, what are some of the conflicts you see and some of the trade-offs that, that typically need to be done to, to achieve that? Um, I think there's been some really good examples showcased um, in, this, in this conference in the East, these last couple of days. And they are really a demonstrator of how different levels of retrofit and the case studies in the publication as well that Kirsty presented shows the, the various levels. And, and essentially, every project needs to be seen in isolation. And we're doing the right thing. And it's really positive to see that that's a priority in many of the considerations, that we're doing the right thing in considering retrofit in the first instance. And as long as that's done, and I think there's a second level that we're going to get to where we will be questioning the parameters that we're testing the viability. Um, and that's probably the next stage. Um, that's something that we're doing already. And in that process, we're balancing all the other factors that need to be considered. We know that the building has to have good bones, at least, and that gives you the, the bulk of the carbon savings. But everything else that needs to be balanced with most probably health and well-being issues. But I think, actually, it's a really good point because every, I, I feel like people assume that developers always want to do a new build when, in actual fact, um, retrofits can be delivered quicker, cheaper, and more efficiently than a new build. So there's also a lot of financial reasons why sometimes a, a retrofit can be much better. But also, you have to look at the market you're, that you're developing into. And just on that design standard, I went around to beautiful building last week and it was a retrofit and it was really quirky but it just worked really really well for that market it really embraced that quirkiness and that character and it did a really really good job of that um, and like you say you know you've also got those buildings that have got the good bones but then you also do have some buildings <laughs> where they don't have that character and they're just not going to be able to deliver what the market needs. Certainly, from, from, a, from a client perspective, if you look at just a standalone project, we would absolutely prefer to spend less money to achieve a similar okay, financial return. Let's say that the risk is the same and then place a different bet on a different project elsewhere because it's helping diversify risk. There's a very good example of we did. So the Broadgate development program is 16 projects and we started with three large ones together. And uh, a very good example of a retrofit, I think, is One Finsbury Avenue by uh, AHMM. And we, at that point in time, we had consent for an enlargement of that building. And for, for the, the point you're making around capital allocation to spread risk, we decided to do something cheaper and quicker that was just a, a refurbishment of existing rather than an extension. 
So it freed up capital for us to spend elsewhere in our portfolio on different projects. And it performed really, really well. And it created the product that people wanted. So you know, you're, you'll be pushing at an open door with clients when you, know, you, you, you come up with a solution that says they can spend less money on this project. You can cut the development cost by 20%, 30% by going retrofit rather than, say, new build or extension because it allows them to spread their risk and place bets in different places, which is a good thing from a portfolio perspective. And that's a good example. It's, it's an architectural challenge, isn't it? If you can get that right, um, and in one of the AHMM's presentation yesterday, one of the outcomes of this having to look at retrofit seriously is engineers are involved earlier, the carbon assessors are involved earlier, the planning process, the carbon um, optioneering or option guidance that the city published and Camden are doing something similar, and the GLA has that in their policies forcing this analysis. But it's basically just another exciting design challenge, and the outcomes are probably going to be more interesting. Well, we actually, so one thing that we do, we do this thing because there's a label for everything at BL, so we do something called a pre-start plan that looks at everything from, um, you, you could call it like a do-nothing option. We call it the minimum lettable product of what's the least you can spend to have a good chance of letting the building in the market. And then we'll incrementally add scope through to new build. And then we'll look at how the financial performance changes across that spectrum. And where do you hit the, uh, when, at what point does the incremental income return from the project start to fall? And then that's where we kind of pick the, pick the sweet spot for the scope of the project. And I'm sorry, ML, it's not the engineers who get involved first with that, it's the QSs. <laughs> yeah. So we will, we'll sit down with the QS and we'll do that at the start of every project before you know, the rest of the team is sort of brought on board. So sorry to say the QSs are the kind of first in the door. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Um, we have. Uh, a lot of questions coming through from, from the audience, so I'll, I'll, I'll pick as many as I can by no particular order. So there's, um, there's a question about how much attention do agents and occupiers give to EPCs, and do we need an embodied carbon EPC kind of on the legislation side of things? What, what do you think about it? I, I can't ever remember being asked a question by an occupier about an EPC, apart from whether it's an A or a B. I, I've, they have started asking now only because if it's not a B, there are likely to be works over the term of their lease, so they're kind of being forced to ask now. However, the fact that EPCs, you can have an EPCD building which is performing better than an EPCA building, and so I think actually having a move towards a system like Neighbours, which really looks at the actual energy performance of something is really the direction we should be going in. Um, but yeah, now that it's starting to impact on their occupation, it's yes. becoming a hotter topic. Yeah, that's a fair point. But most of those certifications, you get asked about, you know, BRIAM, WideScore, Well, Neighbours, get asked about all that stuff first before EPCs, yes, with the exception of, you know, if it's a conversation with an existing occupier in a building that has got, like, you know, less good energy performance, they want to know what your plan is to get it to uh, EPCB. And for embodied carbon, to answer the second part, there is some movement in the industry. There is a part Z that was put together by a group of architects who put it forward to Parliament. Uh, it was debated in Parliament, but postponed, unfortunately. So there is a movement into creating the equivalent of part L, which drives the EBC calculation. Um, for something that covers the whole life carbon um, of a building. So that will happen at some point, hopefully sooner. I think the reality is, though, that embodied carbon just isn't really on the, the agenda of most occupiers. Um, and I think, you know, early on it was the engineers and the people that actually count carbon that were putting it into their requirements. 
the Microsoft RFI when that came out, that was one of the first non-technical type firms that came out and actually asked about embodied carbon. But I think the reality is for most occupiers, it's just not on the agenda at the moment. Do you, do you think that the fact that, for example, the, uh, the neighbors and the design for performance uh, methodology is so much more mature than, say, uh, the level to which the industry is calculating about it carbon now. Do you think that creates a bias towards operational carbon versus embodied? I think part of the, the main reason for the bias is that occupiers are reporting their GHG emissions and they've committed, and therefore they are more interested in their emissions. And embodied carbon, you can split. You can draw the line at the shell and core, shell and floor building, and one, you know, that side is the developer carbon, and the fit-out is very easily separated. And that's a peak in their GHG emissions, but they don't, they're not interested necessarily in what they're moving into in what was there before. Some are, um, but it is not as common to see that interest. Um, but it's probably the driver is their own reporting requirements and other uh, reporting on a national and global level that they now have to do. Yeah, when you think mo most of m most occupiers are services businesses, so their real estate footprint is a big driver of that or carbon footprint, and most of that they will focus on the operational. That's, that's the, the, you know, the way they're thinking at the moment. However, what I would say is the step change that we've seen in the market on what's being delivered, um, now you've got nearly every new build coming through has got a neighbour's target rating, they're BRIAM outstanding, they're EPCA. So actually, the way that developers are now starting to be able to differentiate is through, and we've got this much embodied carbon. So I think there is a shift but that's being driven by kind of an improvement in what is being delivered, if that makes sense. Okay, thank you. Um, so another, another question from the audience. Um, so what if some existing buildings end up in the bottom 20% of the markets? What adaptable lateral thinking is needed for these buildings to save carbon? Change use? Is that an option? Yeah, completely. <laughs> like, we, you know, um, you know, we talked to the, you know, the, 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 the most recent conversations I've had with, uh, on this topic are with the City of London, where it's conversations around things like, you know, how do they shape policy around student housing, around educational institutions, around hotels that can look to take up some of that 10 to 20 percent that is at risk of obsolescence. It might be that that 10 to 20 percent that is at risk of obsolescence shouldn't change use. Maybe in that situation, it's not about retrofit first. Maybe there's densification that's possible there in a super accessible city centre. So it's right to densify and to go taller and to be new. You know, like Kirsty said in kind of the intro, there's a bit of a kind of case by case approach there that's going to be the, the, the challenge for how policy can set out guidance, but also be responsive to um, the fact that, you know, buildings are not single types. And I think that densification point is really important because, I mean, when you look at um, across the UK, uh, the carbon per capita, it is by far the lowest in London. So actually, London is the most efficient place to do business because we have a highly efficient transport system and we have a lot of people coming in um, to a small amount of space. And so actually, when you look at it at that level, it makes sense to densify the areas that we already have that are really accessible. Sorry, because ML mentioned this earlier, and I, I, I meant to try and jump in on it then, but you've reminded me, Kirsty. So, Broadgate Development Programme is 16 projects, so I'm going to use that as my little data set for the moment. 
Um, of those 16, only two are new build. Um, of the two that are new build, the justification for new build, the first one, two Finsbury Avenue, is a um, it's a trebling of um, the area that's on the on the on the site from the existing building. So okay, if that means that per capita carbon is going to be low by having densification there around a transport hub, then hopefully that will, that's acceptable. We need to do that new build as low carbon as we can, which we're trying to do. The second one is one Broadgate. Um, and the justification there is slightly different. So yeah, there was a, there's an additional area that could be kind of explored through you know, the site constraints and townscape and views and all that sort of thing. Um, but there it was more about placemaking and streetscapes. So the footprint of the building is 55, 60,000 square feet. So it's a big block. One of the challenges in places like the city, you get these big blocks and how do you get a finer urban grain? So we wanted to create a route through the building but it used to be offices that came to grade. So the grid, the levels, the cores, they didn't work for creating active frontages and having a route through the building. So that's one of the reasons we went down a new build route for, uh, for one Broadgate. So yeah, different, different reasons for going new build, but it's two out of 16. It's important to, to bear in mind, because there's a bit of a buzz um, about retrofit at the moment. It's the invoke topic, and rightly so. It's, it's something we need to embrace and develop and learn from. But the carbon remains the ultimate aim and the low carbon new building is also a good thing where that's what you're left with when you've considered things um, in full but we are still at, at a point where we're looking I mean you mentioned the campus level consideration but we're still looking within the red line at and the building at a time and there's such a data gap I mean, we should know how much carbon we should be spending. So the, the private industry has come together, Letty has pulled targets together saying a building should be capped at this carbon, this much energy to qualify and to meet the Paris Agreement. But at, at regional level or starting at uh, borough level, at regional level, at national level, no one is saying we have a budget and this is what we have to do. I mean, recently there was an announcement in the spring budget for an investment from government on lab space, and we know lab space is high carbon. It should have come alongside, and we're trying, we know that this is carbon intensive, here is how we're going to address that, here is how we're going to offset that, and here is how we're going to incentivize occupiers to consider energy efficiency because it's quite a challenging thing to do to reduce energy in labs. And it's just, um, there needs to be more responsibility on government and local government side to share or to work out and share that data that we can all access and plug in our red line into the bigger picture. Definitely, and that, that links nicely to, to a question we have uh, around, around uh, the financial incentives to retrofit. So the question goes, how can we have a conversation about retrofit first, retrofit only, um, when we continue to externalize the financial cost of carbon? Does the panel agree that we need a carbon tax? Is that, is that the right incentive? Sorry, we were talking about this beforehand, and yeah, well, why, why aren't we just, why isn't the economy entirely taxed based on carbon and sugar? That'd be probably kind of two good things that we can take away and change, but maybe it's outside of our remit uh, today. Uh, uh, at British Land, we, we do try and internalise the cost of carbon to a degree. So for our internal appraisals, we apply um, a, a cost of carbon. I've now forgotten. My mind's gone blank as to what it is. Um, I think we do £60 a tonne, and I think £20 goes towards um, offsets of embodied, and then £40 a tonne goes towards um, a transition vehicle that we then use to forward fund the retrofit of standing stock to help um, achieve EPCB. Um, so we, we try and do that, but that price of carbon's probably too low. 
And I think the price of carbon generally is, is, is too low to change decision making outside of um, more um, principles or ideals based decision making in, in projects at the moment. I can't think of a time when we've looked at something and said, okay, cost, time, quality, carbon, great. The, the, the cost of the carbon impact is so great in the pounds a ton terms that we've got to do something different. It's always been because the team is highly motivated and engaged in the topic and wants to do the right thing rather than being financially incentivized. So I'd be very supportive of changes to the tax system that make it simpler, more principles based and more aligned to the challenges that we're facing. However, I think we are a bit more tax biased and not incentive and investment biased from at a government level. There's, um, we, we've gone through maybe the last 10 years of the polluter pays principle, which is driving us to improve and become more energy efficient, etc. Um, but look at what the decarbonisation of the grid has done. It's, it's going to step change operational emissions rapidly. There was a similar conversation this morning at our breakfast session around water neutrality and who pays for that um, problem. Is it the developer or is it the government? Is it the water companies? There needs to be more investment and financing to encourage and to decarbonise the construction industry, um, to decarbonise the whole uh, supply chain. And it's a huge undertaking that we can't be doing from you know, the, the bottom up, it needs to go both ways. I think my, my ask of government would be, don't tax like us, me, British land more until you've done something around the capacity of the grid, which is outside of our control, and then um, how quickly that grid is decarbonising. So before you tax British land more, please uh, make it easier to do onshore wind farms. Like That's something that should definitely be done before you know, more taxes levied on you know, corporations and people. Yeah, I was, uh, in my we've opinion, got, we've got another question that sort of links to that uh, on, on the investment side of things. Does, does capital value expected uh, yield range rental value of new versus retrofit uh, encourage um, refurbishment? I guess it goes back to the question on whether we can provide a similar product, right? Yeah, so Kirsty pointed out data gaps um, at the start, and that could be like data gaps around. Um, how capable the building is of being retrofitted. When you think about the way that that works chronologically, um, ideally you want the building to be vacant so you can investigate, you know, is the building as whatever record information you've got um, uh, says it is. Uh, the problem then is the, the empty building is burning a hole in your pocket from a returns perspective, so you can't wait, you have to make assumptions. I think the other thing on the data side, there's only very anecdotal evidence so far around um, where we've seen refurbishments achieve best-in-class rents. The greater the scope, the easier it is to close the gap. Um, the closest example I can think of from recent experience um, is uh, there's a building at Broadgate called Exchange House, which is like a bridge over the tracks as you come out of Liverpool Street Station. Quite a famous design. And Piercy did a, um, a part-building retrofit on that scheme, and we, we, we got within like a gnat's whisker of, of new build rents for that, for a 30-year-old product where it's a part building refurbishment. And that speaks to the good bones, 30,000 square foot floors, really generous lift lobbies, ability to create roof terraces on top, great bones of that building, but also some of the qualitative things that um, Kirsty was mentioning earlier from some of the tours she was doing last week, the qualitative aspect of the design. It's just beautifully, aesthetically crafted you know, refurbishment. They've done an absolutely cracking job. And that's where you kind of see the gap close. I'm, you know, I, I'm not just being polite and saying that I can't. Can I think of a time that someone's got it very wrong recently where there's been a retrofit first project that has, that's completely failed? Uh, I actually can't think of one rather than just being polite by not naming names. Hopefully not one of British lands or Hilson Rands or JLLs. 
Thank you. We've got, we've got only a couple of minutes left, uh, so I'll try and choose a couple of questions wisely. Uh, otherwise, just please feel free to, to raise your hands if, if you've got a question. Um, so back to the density point, um, for cities to be dense and diverse, uh, homes within cities are, are incredibly important. So how viable and what are the implications of, of retrofitting commercial buildings to be used as resi? Convert to resi, okay. Um, I mean, it's, I think we've sort of addressed this question before in that, yes, of course, it's a case by case again. Some buildings are more appropriate for convert, to be converted into a use than, than another. Um, resi um, would address the housing issue. I think we, do, we need a lot, we need to inject a lot more resi in high density city centers to make best use of the carbon spent in enabling that infrastructure and also to diversify and activity, uh, to, di to, diversity, to diversify the economy, um, and to bring the weekends uh, you know, back into the center of London, which is pretty quiet in some areas. So absolutely, that should be on the list. I think that just needs to be driven through planning, though, in terms of zoning and having that opportunity, and maybe discussions, early discussions with owners about whether there is an opportunity to consider that and what would incentivize that move. I'd like to add two things. The first thing is, it's happened loads over time anyway. You look at all those kind of townhouses in Mayfair where it's been someone's house, it turns into an office, it becomes a private members club, then it's a boutique hotel. So it happens. Um, really good example was shown to us by the Museum of London a few weeks ago where there was a, a multi-story stables in Southwark. So you had a horse looking out of a window on the fourth floor towards St Paul's. And that stuff is now been converted to residential. So it happens anyway. The second point is, I hope it happens, in, it, should, it should happen, it happens anyway, but it, it should happen in a way that's better regulated than some of the permitted development conversions of the last you know, five to seven years. Some of those are creating the product that I, I think is unacceptable. Okay, unfortunately our, our time is up, so we'll have, we'll have to wrap up there. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, unfortunately we didn't go uh, over all of the questions, but please stick around and, and, and have a chat to us if you'd, if you'd like to, uh, to continue to talk about the subject. So with that, yeah, thanks to our speakers and thanks everyone.